This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now we visit the owner of a small pizza joint in downtown Oxford, Mississippi, who just so happens to be a local legend when it comes to music. Okay, so this game that I have over in the corner is the original 1983 Spy Hunter. And I played this game every summer at Myrtle Beach. I spent every dollar I had on this game. Most millennials come in and struggle because they don't realize there's a gas pedal. Now, if you go fast enough for, see how the, the, the counter at the top? If you go as fast as you can, you get two extra free men here at the end, and then that kind of puts you ahead of everyone else. I can tell if you're going to be able to beat my score just by the sound of the machine when you come in. That's why you just shouldn't stop, because see, now you can't get the free man, but you get the point. Uh, well, my name is Tate Moore. I own Square Pizza on the Square been there since 2007. One of the only businesses on the square that's still up here that survives without selling alcohol. And uh, they don't make it easy. And uh, I'm originally from southeastern Ohio. I came to Oxford in 92 as a freshman. The one thing I missed in Oxford was uh, the pizza that I grew up with, which is kind of a uh, southeastern Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania style slice. It's a, a thin, crispy, double-baked provolone cheese slice, and uh, it's cooked on a rolled steel pan. You know, it's double-baked, so it's a real unique slice. And I thought, man, I needed a real job around that time. I'd gotten married, and uh, I've been in the, uh, the music business. I started the Kudzu Kings in 94. Uh, so I grew up in Caldwell, Ohio, which is between Marietta and Cambridge, Ohio. It's a real small, small town, and, and where I'm from, they call it southeastern Ohio. When I, when I first came to Mississippi, people were always like, where are you from? You know, because you have an accent, but it's not our accent, and you know, I still get that to this day. My mother is uh, Pam Moore, and my father is Chad Moore. My mom was from... Uh, Denver, Colorado, or actually I should say uh, Golden, Colorado. She used to always say that she dated Joe Kors. 
my brother was a big quarterback star in Caldwell. And my father was a big sports guy. I always say that he sent me off to boarding school because he didn't want me to uh, break my brother's records. Anyway, they said it was for a, a better education, which I did get. But I went to a boarding school called Wheeling, uh, in Wheeling, West Virginia, called Lindsley. It was like the Grand Ole Opry. They'd have country music come in uh, every Friday and Saturday. The opening house act would always play every Friday and Saturday. And, uh, you know, I made like a little tape with that house band. And I grew up quick. My sister's boyfriend, Todd Duvall, used to come over and go out on dates with my sister. And we, my mom had a guitar, uh, an old little small Yamaha guitar that still plays great. And Todd would come over and play guitar, and I'd watch, and uh, he ended up spending more time on his date with me playing guitar at the house than uh, he did going out with my sister. He don't come back home much anymore. His life ain't like it was before. He's dates movie stars, drives the greatest, latest car. He don't come back home much anymore When you call his phone, it doesn't ring He's got his mind on bigger, better things They used to always say He'll be a star someday When you call his phone, it doesn't ring Well, he wears confidence like a disguise He's always got his eye on the prize He's got the world on a string Nothing costs him anything He don't come back home much anymore If you ever find yourself his way you should probably go and see him play For his songs are sweet They'll knock you off your feet He don't come back home anymore Well, his heart it always beats to a melody He's always got a song for you or me Yes, you should see him play Before his memory fades Cause he don't come back home much anymore He don't come back home much anymore He don't come back home much anymore Beautiful, beautiful. And when we come back, we continue with Tate Moore. And we broadcast out of this small town just south of Memphis, Oxford, Mississippi. And sometimes we tell stories of the people in our own little town, too. More with Tate Moore's story here on Our American Story.
we return to the story of Tate Moore here on Our American Stories. He's the owner of a local pizza shop in Oxford, Mississippi, who started a southern rock band called the Kudzu Kings. And folks, all over this great country, there are people we know who maybe we don't quite know enough. And that's one of the main themes here on this show is the talent in this country. Well, it's everywhere. A lot of it's hidden. Now let's return to Tate Moore's story. I got a theater scholarship to Ole Miss, so it was nice to go to a school that wanted me. But once I got here, man, I found uh, a couple little bars, and I started playing acoustic by myself. And I had my brother's ID that said I was 22. So here I was, 18, in Oxford with a guitar and a PA system that I'd had since I was... Because, you know, I'd been playing little house party gigs since I was 15. Anyway, so I get to Oxford, and I did a little acoustic gig... One of my first big opportunities was uh, there was a bar called Lafayette's, which is now the middle room of the library. And uh, I opened up for a band called Beanland on Friday night. And uh, that went well. So I got to open up for David Allen Coe the next night on Saturday. And, uh, you know, I was ecstatic. So I'd been singing all these songs through high school. And anyway, I did learn I sang Tennessee Whiskey opening up for David Allen Coe. (laughs) <laughs> and I remember him during his show as he went into Tennessee Whiskey. The young man before me th- tried to do this song. Uh, it goes like this here, or basically, something like that. And I remember thinking, oh, my God. And I thought it was a George Jones song. But uh, I learned don't ever sing the guy's song <laughs> that you're opening up for. So, lesson learned at 18 in 92 at Ole Miss. I classically destroy all original versions of any song that I do. <laughs> I, you know, I listen to it real quick, and then I learn the words, and then I go with it. The Kudzu Kings uh, used to play the song uh, Like a Rolling Stone. And uh, I remember George turned to me. Who George was in the, in the band Beanland uh, that I opened up for in 92. And he was like, man, uh, why do you do the, the version like that? <laughs> and I was like, well, I... I didn't know enough about guitar to know the other chords. So I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I do like how it originally goes. And now, you know, here I am 25 years later after being with the Kudzu Kings, and I do appreciate the way that the original stuff goes. You have to at least know how it goes before you change it. So Kudzu is a green vine that just grows over everything. It grows a foot and a half a day. And uh, so, you know, if there's a telephone pole somewhere, it's going to be up the pole in a week. Dave, who plays bass with the Kudzu Kings, um, I used to have a little yellow house over here on the square. And uh, he had this Volvo that sometimes worked, sometimes didn't. The Volvo was parked to the point where the Kudzu grew over the Volvo by the time he got it going again. My father was the guy behind Kudzu. He said, he said, son, if you're going to be in a band in Mississippi, you need to use the word Kudzu. And I told Max, who plays guitar with Kudzu Kings, I said, told him the story. And he just said, Kings, Almond Brothers, Kudzu Kings. And I think the name is part of why we've been able to last so long. It's a great name. <laughs> I was playing a, uh, a solo acoustic gig a bar called Ireland's and I'd been playing for a couple years so in 94 is when uh, Dave started showing up he uh, he had a stand-up bass so he you know the next Tuesday he showed up 
And then uh, he just kept showing up. And then he eventually brought Max. Max was in a band called the Mosquito Brothers. And they were uh, a meters cover band. I'm doing these country songs that I wrote that are really square. And then the next thing you know, the Mosquito Brothers all show up. They had lost their bass player and their singer. Dave and I were perfect. They started playing these country songs of mine, but they started playing them with this funk. And, uh, well, we just celebrated 25 years uh, last weekend. Yeah, man, it's, it's a long time to be with the original. And last weekend was the original six. So uh, we've, had, uh, we've had drummers. Uh, we've had three or four drummers, but they've all been with us for over 20 years. And uh, it's funny that we've kind of cycled back to the original six. know what to call us because we're doing original stuff um, but we really play kind of like the Grateful Dead so you know we'll sing a couple verses and then we've got three soloists so you know we'll stretch it out and then come back in with another verse maybe a bridge and another chorus and when you've played with people for that long too that's what's funny is everybody's like I'll get mad at somebody sometimes don't you remember when we did it like this back in 97 and they will they'll say oh yeah I do remember that <laughs> I'm telling you we we are playing better now than we ever played just because we're all so you know we're older and we're all, we're all better at what we do uh, you know we listen more we certainly appreciate getting together and doing it now like we might only do four or five shows uh, a year now uh, and, you know, we're trying to get on the festival circuit right now or get back to the festival circuit. But, you know, as old guys, it's, it's tough to get out there because, uh, you know, I'm, I've done my day. I did like 15, 16 years in a 15-passenger van. Those, those days for me are over. I just don't want to do it. We got real lucky in 94 because uh, when George started playing with us, George was pretty much famous from a band called Beanland. And Beanland had a piano player that left Beanland and went to Widespread Panic. And Beanland and Widespread Panic were both kind of uh, competing in the same southern market in the late 80s. Uh, and when JoJo went to, to Panic, they just became this whole new machine. So Panic was really big in the mid-90s. And we knew JoJo, so he hooked us up. Man, we got to play... Uh, we played Mud Island in 96 uh, with Widespread Panic. That just propelled us. You know, every bar that we wanted to play in the Southeast, we could now play. We played Red Rocks with them in 2000. Man, for me, it's as big as it ever got. 
and and my mom being from Golden, you know, I grew up with my sister, you know, going to go see U2 at Red Rocks. And, man, and, you know, we just opened up. Uh, but it was a 45-minute set. And, man, it was a sold-out crowd on a Sunday. And uh, I w- once I started doing it, it was just amazing. You know, like, I, it, it was the moment where I was like, wow, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, it was like the pinnacle of like, wow, I can do this. You know, it's like everything's kind of small potatoes after that. And you've been listening to Tate Moore telling his story. He owns Square Pizza on the square here in Oxford, Mississippi. And we tell stories about everything here on the show. It's what we say every night. And sometimes we tell stories about people right here in our town. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, he said. About that day, that night, he opened up for a big band at the time, Widespread Panic, at Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado. And if you've never been to a show there, folks, just get there to see a show. It's one of the most beautiful venues in America. It is literally carved out of a mountain. The acoustics are great. The setting is great. And there's possibly not a better venue in America. And I know everyone's got their favorite. But for me, a Jersey boy living here in Oxford, Mississippi... I can say as someone who's been to a lot of shows all over the country, Red Rocks is one of the most beautiful. If you've got a story like this about someone in your town, about someone in your family, these don't have to be just the big stories about the big successes, the Merle Haggards and the, and the, and the big bands. Uh, no, there's, there's the smaller successes and the life's well lived, and we love telling those stories too. So send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, it just doesn't have to be music. It can be anything involved in the arts, a small business. Uh, something. Somebody started a church, and the church did great things. There are so many things we do with our lives that give to others and fulfill us. When we come back, more of Tate Moore and his story here on Our American Stories. Continue with the story of Tate Moore here on Our American Stories, a local pizza shop owner and founder of a band that became widely popular in the South during the 1990s called the Kudzu Kings. And by the way, if you've ever been down here and you see these green vines just about taking over everything on the side of a road, well, that's Kudzu. At their height, they opened for widespread panic at Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado. Let's continue with the final part of this story. After that day, I didn't, I didn't necessarily get nervous anymore. I get, I get a little nervous now just because we don't play as much. But when we were doing like 180 dates a year, I mean, the stage kind of felt like my living room, to be honest. It was like we could do in with the talent that I had around me. It was like, you know, we couldn't fail. You could, you know, you could go any direction 
and would turn cool. What people don't realize is when 9-11 hit, it changed the market. Bars that used to, to pay bands a lot of money to come play, uh, they had slowly gotten into the DJ thing. And once they got to that point, they were like, well, I'm going to pay one guy 200 bucks and then charge everybody at the door and I'm going to take all the money. So by 2004, we were like, man, it wasn't worth it anymore. And I mean, as much as we loved playing, we knew that the idea of getting in a van and driving around it just wasn't as realistic. In 2000, after the Red Rock show, we did get an offer, basically. Do you guys want to go do it? And at the time, we thought we were doing a pretty good job by ourselves. You know, some guys in the band just, I don't want to say they weren't ready, but some, a couple had just gotten married, had a kid, thinking about doing something else. You know, it was just, I feel that when we told them no, a lot of doors got slammed on us for a whole, you know, a decade after that. So I think that's what made it tough from 2000 to 2004. Just because people were like, well, we gave you a shot, and these guys said no. But, you know, we had three different agencies booking us. One would book us on the East Coast. We handled the bookings in the Southeast. And then we had somebody that handled booking in the Colorado market. So, I mean, we just, you know, we weren't looking at the big picture, in my opinion. You know, you got to give away some to, to get something. When I look at it now, I don't think we would, we would be as, as happy where we are now. I think we would have made it. I mean, I think we would have grinded it out. I mean, longevity is the key to this business. I still live the dream that we're going to get the lottery ticket. You know, I, I still think that we're going to do it. I certainly feel much better about myself because of, uh, you know, Square Pizza has been in business. It's, it's nice not to have to depend on the music business. And people have always said that we can't do it a certain way. But to be honest, because we've done it the way that we've done it, I now feel like we're going to be able to reap the rewards. There haven't been many middlemen. I think we just need, we need one thing to hit. And then I want a bus to come pick me up at the house, get on it on a Thursday, go play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and come back, and then do that again in like a month. <laughs> you know, two months, go sell three shows and then come back home and then go work three shows the other direction. And people say, well, that's not feasible to make that work. Well, I stare at these buses that pull outside the Lyric every day that I'm at the pizza shop. It's like my curse. All I, I've always wanted a bus and, <laughs> and to go out on a tour, which I never have. And now I stare at them every day across the street. But, uh, you know, those are 3500 bucks a day. Now, we've had some opportunities where we've made good enough money to, to spend that. But everybody in the band's like, <laughs> let's, let's, ma let's make the 3500 bucks. <laughs> so, you know, it is what it is. Where I'm from, you know, they'll sprinkle a little cold cheese and even cold pepperonis on the slices and I served a slice to a girl uh, last night and I put some cheese uh, on the top of it and she came back and she was like this cheese is cold um, can I have another slice and uh, I mean I just kind of I looked at her I was like well 
I did that purposely, but sure, I'll get you another slice. So, I mean, I've had to kind of learn to give people ranch. I feel I have a really great sauce and people just ruin it by dipping it in ranch. But I mean, I can't tell you how to eat your slice. Well, I like to say that I charge you 25 cents for it, but you know, you then get, as people pull out their debit cards to pay for a 25 cent ranch, that's when I shake my head and I just give, them, give it to them. I've had to just live with it now. So I just, I mean, literally everybody wants ranch. For me, I think to get over, I've had to learn to just expect it. And uh, I'm not quite over it, but I'm, it's a, I'm a work in progress. What I love about Oxford is that it's still a small town, a big time atmosphere. I mean, we get big time sports, big time music, big time restaurants. Where I'm from in Ohio, I mean, they have nowhere to go. You know, they, they drive 45 minutes to a Cracker Barrel. In Oxford, you know, you can, be, you can be a big fish in a small pond here. What's magical about the place is I feel Elvis Presley could walk into this pizza shop and it wouldn't surprise me. Anybody that I've ever wanted to meet eventually shows up here. Every day I walk my dogs around this town Head in the clouds Staring at the ground I might walk by your place You might give a little weight In every house there is a story Just waiting to be told You got it in your heart Yeah, you got it in your soul Yeah, you got it in your heart You got it in your soul Yeah, my sister moved away Nearly 30 years ago She never looked back She just knew she had to go She's an actress now Always looking for the part Well, I hope Hollywood It doesn't break her heart Oxford is a roller coaster I have five months to make money and the other seven I try to, to not lose. And the way I do that is by being so small that when, uh, when Oxford shuts down and the kids leave town, man, I, I've got like two, three employees. I'll just be like, man, let's everybody take a two-week vacation. And I can shut the doors and save money. Whereas uh, if I had more square footage, you know, people are dependent on you, and you just, uh, there's money that you're going to lose in December and January, and it just, it gets easier every year, because, <laughs> you know, it's coming. I love Bobby Charles. He was a piano player out of Louisiana. I love Mose Allison. I love Professor Longhair. Let's see, like, this is one of my songs in a, in a, in a Longhair style. Sweet. 
And you've been listening to Tate Moore, and there are so many stories like this across the country. Yeah, maybe not, you know, the U2s or the Bruce Springsteens, but so many local bands that did good and still get together and make some noise. Tate Moore's story here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and now a story from one of our regular contributors, Bert Rossica. In 2012 for reasons known only to Providence I decided to type a list of the reasons why a manual typewriter is better than a computer. My intent when I started was to come up with 99 reasons. The reason I settled on 99 was because back in 1985, Tom Boswell, who was then the beat reporter for baseball for the Washington Post, was given an assignment by his editor to come up with the 99 reasons why baseball is better than football. And as he tells the story, he comes into the office at 9 in the morning and his editor tells him he needs on his desk by 12 o'clock at least 99 reasons. Boswell goes back to his office a little anxious that he may or may not be able to accomplish the task in the time allotted and proceeds to write on his typewriter. According to him, it took him 45 minutes to complete the task and it became an instant classic and part of the pantheon of baseball. The reason I had a newfound appreciation for the typewriter had to do with the fact that our then 12-year-old son shows up one day with a typewriter. I asked him, why in the world did you buy a typewriter? And he told me, I always wanted one, Dad. I thought, all right. He got the typewriter at a thrift store in our town, and the reason he was at the thrift store was because at the age of 12, he decided he did not want to attend the cotillion at his school wearing khaki colored chinos. He wanted to wear Nantucket red colored chinos. And I told my wife, I don't feel like spending like $100 at Brooks Brothers or Nordstrom's or some other place for a kid to wear Nantucket red chinos for six months and then grow out of them. So I said, take him to the thrift store. So he came back from the thrift store without the chinos, but with the typewriter. So I said, what did you pay for it? $15, Dad. $15 for a typewriter, okay. 
The guy wanted 30, Dad, but I told him it didn't work, so I'd only give him 15. I tried to get it for 10, but he insisted on 15. The kid's 12 years old, negotiating with the thrift store manager or owner or whatever he was. So he has this $15 typewriter that doesn't work. Why'd you get a typewriter if it doesn't work? He said, I figured you could fix it, Dad. I said, all right, it's a reasonable answer. Let's take it down to the bench and see what we can do. So I take it down to my workbench. Finally, we get the thing working. Well, we proceed to then argue over who gets to use the typewriter. I wanted to use it. He didn't want to let me. I argued, I fixed it. He argued, I paid for it. Why don't you get your own typewriter? So I did. Then I got another, and then another, and then another. And the next thing I know, I'm collecting and restoring old manual typewriters. And I started writing. And in the process of that, I realized writing on a typewriter is way more enjoyable than writing on a computer. One day I'm typing away on the typewriter, writing heaven knows what, and I'm thinking, this is great. I also start thinking about the Boswell list. So what if I can come up with 99 reasons why a typewriter is better than a computer? So, put a piece of paper in the typewriter and I started to type. And here's what I came up with. I'm gonna go through the list. Some of them are a little redundant. In fact, I think some are absolutely redundant. Now, for those of you who have never typed on a typewriter, you're just going to have to use your imagination. And for those of us old enough to have typed on a typewriter, I think some of these things might strike a chord. Speaking of which, the number one reason is there are no power chords. Two, no chords connecting to a printer. Three, no cords connecting to an external hard drive. Four, no cords connecting to anything. Five, no software to install. Six, no software to download. Ten, the typewriter can't crash. Eleven, no fatal system error messages. Twenty-four, no font to choose. 25. No font color to choose. Unless you have a two-tone ribbon. 26. No font size to choose. 27. You don't have to format your font. 29. No print button to push. 33. No leaving your desk to retrieve your printed work. 34. The typewriter can reflect your mood. If you are upset and you type harder as a result, it will show in your work because the keys will penetrate the paper. 39, I like baseball. Shirley Povich used the typewriter. Need I say more? Forty. There is no chance what you type will be uploaded inadvertently to the internet for all the world to see whether you want it to or not. 
Typewriters are secure and private. 41. There is no spell check. You need to learn how to spell and use a dictionary. In the process, you will improve your vocabulary. 42. There is no grammar check. Read Strunk and White and learn how to use it. You will improve your grammar. 43. No annoying perforated red underlines telling you something is misspelled. 44. No annoying perforated green underlines telling you something isn't punctuated properly. They are not always correct anyway. 51. If you are working late and happen to fall asleep at the keyboard with one of your fingers pressing against the key, you won't wake up later to discover that you have just typed 2,359 pages of the letter K. Fifty-three, no mouse. Fifty-six, you don't get interrupted with emails. Fifty-seven, no one tries to friend you. Sixty-seven, when I am working on my typewriter, it can't be confused with playing solitaire or shopping on the web. Seventy-one, when I type, I am not distracted by all the other things on a computer that are ultimately less fulfilling. 72. Most of the good old typewriters were made in America. 77. There are no gamers on typewriters. 78. If a typewriter breaks, they rarely if ever do, you take it to some old guy that has interesting stories to tell rather than some young kid that doesn't know anything. You may not know it, but you probably have more in common with that old guy, even if you're not old. 79. You don't need extended warranties. You can't get them anyway. 83. If someone sees you or hears you typing on a typewriter, they will stop and ask you about it and you will have something interesting to discuss. No one ever asks me about my computer. 91. If I want to quote-unquote carbon copy someone, I get to use real carbon paper. 92. Now my kids can learn what real carbon paper is and why they CC someone. 93. Another personal one. I now have a use for those three bottles of whiteout I have been saving in my desk for so many years. 99. You never have to reboot your typewriter. And what a terrific piece by Bert Rossica. 99 reasons why a typewriter is better than a computer. I still have one. I don't use it, but my dad still does. He types everything up on little cards. When I get a birthday card, it, the, the envelope is typed. He is still hacking away at the typewriter and loves it. And by the way, I really do remember that Tom Boswell piece in the Washington Post. It is dazzling. And that's 99 reasons why baseball is better than football. And we got to call Tom and see if he can do that. It was written many years ago. But my goodness, it still stands. By the way, one of my favorites on our show, Mike Levin, who is the COO and the president of Las Vegas Sands, ran Holiday Inn Express, a great hotel guy. 
in the business for 50 plus years and a legend, he sent us 54 things I learned in 54 years. If you have a story, a list, send it to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Bert Rossica's 99 Reasons Why a Typewriter is Better Than a Computer here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's about a 17-year-old kid named Bob Heft, who designed the 50-star American flag we all fly proudly to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. After learning about Betsy Ross, he probably didn't give much thought to how the subsequent U.S. flags were designed. It might seem like a no-brainer, flag makers just added a new star for every new state, right? Well, it turns out not that simple. Each new flag has a very careful design, and the arrangement of the stars must be precise and symmetrical. And for the flag we know today, that arrangement was designed by a junior in high school from Ohio. It was 1958, and America only contained 48 United States. The flag at the time featured six rows of eight stars. Bob Heff's history teacher assigned a class project where each student had to bring in something they made. Bob Heft loved flags, and he loved politics. So, having been inspired by the Betsy Ross story the class just studied, and seeing the news that Alaska was poised to become our nation's 49th state, with Hawaii soon behind, Heft decided to make a 50-star flag. So he made some adjustments to his parents' 48-star flag, brought it in, and triumphantly placed it on his teacher's desk. Here's Bob. In American history class, we had to do an outside-of-class project. We could make or do whatever we wanted. Like a science fair or something like that, you bring the project in. The Betsy Ross story uh, intrigued me. And my mom and dad, uh, they had a a 48-star flag they received as a wedding present, which, of course, meant a lot to them. Well, I took a scissors and cut it up. Heff's mother walked in from the kitchen and found him cutting up their family flag and promptly began scolding him. She told his father when he got home, and Heft received another tongue lashing. I had always been in the Boy Scouts, and I had always been patriotic. Heft told the Lancaster Eagle Gazette in 2007. They wanted to know why I would turn on the flag. I had never sewn in my life. I watched my mom sew, but I'd never sewn. And since making the flag of her country, I've never sewn again. So anyhow, we get to class. I had my flag on the teacher's desk. And the teacher said, what's this thing on my desk? So I got up and I approached the desk and I'm shaking like a leaf. And he said, why you got too many stars? You don't even know how many states we have. And uh, he gave me the grade of a B minus. Now that a B minus isn't that bad of a grade. However, uh, the friend of mine, Jim, he picked up five leaves off the ground. He's taping these leaves down to the notebook and the labeling, elm, hickory, maple. 
and the teacher gave him the grade of an A. I was really, I was, I was upset. The teacher said, if you don't like the grade, get it accepted in Washington, then come back and see me. I might consider changing the grade. Bob arrived home that day with his class project. And I had it in a plastic bag, and I threw it on the sofa. My mother came in, she said, supper's ready. I said, I'm not hungry. She said, what's wrong? I said, and I never talked about a teacher. I said, this stupid teacher gave me a B minus on the flag. And then she really hacked me. I said, that's more I'd have given you, because she was really dead set against this. Two years later, I'd written 21 letters to the White House, made 18 phone calls. Now, you can imagine when my mom got the phone bell. What's this number? I said, well... Mom, that's the White House. So anyhow, I uh, got this call, and it said, now, the President of the United States is calling you later on today. Well, at that time, Eisenhower was president, and he comes on the phone, and he says, is this Robert G. Heft? And I said, yes, sir, but you can just call me Bob. And he says, I want to know the possibility of you coming to Washington, D.C. on July 4th for the official adoption uh, of the uh, new flag. Bob received this call from President Eisenhower at his new place of employment. Here's what happened next. Well, I've been at this company 11 days. I said, well, wait a minute. My boss is standing here. I reached down, pushed the red button on the phone, put the President of the United States on hold. What are you doing? I said, I've got to talk to you. He said, you just put the President of the United States on hold. I said, he wants me to come to Washington. He said, well, tell him you'll be there. I said, look, I don't have any sick leave. I don't have any vacation. Because you know your first job out of high school, you don't want to mess up and just lose it. And he said, get him back on the phone. We'll work out the details. We'll charge it off to executive leave or something. But get him back. He was really upset. And we did a lot of military contracts. I think they probably thought, here's this kid that's been working there for 11 days is going to mess up future contracts, uh, you know, uh, putting the president on hold. So I picked up the phone, put the white button, put the phone up and said, uh, Dwight, are you still there? Because, you know, I didn't know how you properly addressed it. And, and they're, they're cracking up. Oh, my Lord, here's Bob talking to his buddy Dwight and stuff. Years following his talk with Dwight, Bob preserved this historic moment and paid a visit to his old teacher. And so uh, I have the grade book. It's encased in plastic. It's kept in a bank my teacher and he said I guess if it's good enough for Washington it's good enough for me I hereby change the grade to an A. Decades after Heft inspired people young and old with his follow your dream story. He became a high school teacher, college professor and a seven term mayor of Napoleon Ohio. He spoke extensively as many as 200 engagements a year and visited the White House 14 times under nine presidents. Heft died on December 12, 2009 at the age of 68. But his legacy survives every time we fly his 50-star creation. And if the U.S. ever adds a 51st state, Heft's got that flag covered too. Back in 1958, he designed a 51-star version that uses six rows of stars, alternating between rows of nine and eight. This would make Heft the only person to design two United States flags. Bob said in 2007, an idea doesn't do any good if you don't pursue it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
And we continue here with our American stories. And we tell stories about everything here on the show, as you well know. And often it's not the rich and the famous or the people who've innovated or done extraordinary things and everybody knows about. It's the, it's the ordinary folks in this country doing extraordinary things. And that brings us to the story of Wendy Caldwell. She is the oldest cadet to graduate from Houston's Police Academy. Faith brings us the story. Wendy Caldwell is a 54-year-old mounted patrol officer. This is actually her second time working for the Houston Police Department. She first went to the academy in 1993 and graduated that same year. She was then assigned to a patrol station. After having three years of service, then I applied and went to the mounted patrol unit um, where I stayed until 1998. And... uh, During that time, I had gotten married, and uh, we had our first child. It just really felt like it was a better calling to stay at home and raise the kids. So that's what I did. I chose to resign my position at the police department and raise the kids, and that's what I did for the next 18 years. What was it like going from being a police officer to a stay-at-home mom? I got to experience all kinds of things, you know. You know, everything that you, you hope you get to see when your kids are growing up, they're, when they say their first word or when they, when they take their first steps. And, uh, uh, you know, I got to be that, that mom that drove the kids to dance and baseball practice. And I was privileged to homeschool my kids for a good portion of their uh, academic years. And so it was, it was very fulfilling. It was really nice. It, it, it was... Um, much different than being, you know, going going to be a full-time mom where, I mean, there is no manual to being a mother. You just are, and you figure it out along the way, and if you're lucky, you have family and friends that can help you along the way, but for the most part, it's, it's kind of a steep learning curve, you know, and you, um, when the kids are little, my kids were 15 months apart, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, you know, and it's not like going to a nine to five job every day. Um, there's no sick days. There's no time off. There's no vacation days. There, there isn't any of that stuff. You, you are on call 24 seven, you know, 365 days a year. But on the flip side of that, the reward is, it's just tremendous. It's, it's incredible to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have traded it for the world, but I did go through a small identity you know, shift there, and I realized uh, sitting on the riding lawnmower one summer, um, one summer day driving around, I said, you know, life is good. I, I, get, to, I get to do this, and I get to raise my kids, and, I, and um, life is good. So a great moment you know, to realize that I was happy and satisfied and that uh, you know, it's a big change. It's, it's scary. I, I left something that I loved. I had a horse that I loved um, and into something that I, you know, had no idea how it was going to turn out or, or what was going to happen. And it was, you know, those are scary moments. Those can be a little frightening. How did Wendy end up back with the Houston Police Department after staying home with the kids? After, after being married, uh, we were married almost 20 years. Uh, no, we were married 20 years at that point because we were married a couple years before we started having children. 
and um, we went through a really rough time and ended up getting a divorce. Um, and that was that was really tough. Um, so I had to, you know, think about. Well, gosh, you know, what am I going to do? I, I I've got to go back to work. Um, what am I going to do? I haven't done anything for the last 18 years. I have some college. I don't have a college degree. Um, and my my resume basically says stay at home mom. And who's going to hire me? I'm 50, almost, I was 52 years of age at the time, and, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Coincidentally, I was playing softball, a co-ed softball with uh, a group of friends, and uh, one of them just happened to be a sergeant in the recruiting division for HPD. And I had v done some visiting with a, an old friend of mine from the Harris County Sheriff's Department, and she she suggested that I attempt to uh, challenge the TCOL exam, which is the state licensing exam, which means I would study and then challenge the ex apply to challenge the exam, and then once I did that, I could I could be certified again, and then I would have to have an agency pick up my commission. So I was chatting with my recruiting sergeant friend and uh, asked him how difficult he thought it would be to do that, and he says, well, why? Are you thinking about coming back? And I said, well, I don't think uh, I'm eligible to come back to HPD. And he goes, well, hold on a second. Let me, let me double check that. So he checked with his lieutenant, and apparently I was eligible. There was a, a gentleman, coincidentally, that was a brother to uh, a gentleman that I had graduated with the first time in the academy that came back to the department at the age of 50 and he set precedence for the police department that if you were a former HPD officer and had left as long as you could fulfill the, the all the requirements and do the physical um, physical training that you were eligible to come back and so I was able to come back to HPD uh, with the stipulation that I had to complete the entire six and a half month academy again. So. That process began and um, came back August 29th of um, 2016 and graduated the academy again in uh, March 16th of 2017. What were the two experiences of the academy like for Wendy? They were completely different for me. Uh, the first time I went through, I was 29 years of age and graduated at 30. So I was, you know, back then I, I was into, I, I kept myself in pretty good shape. I, I still do, but you know, there's a, there's a big difference between 30 and 50 and <laughs> most people figure that out as they age. But um, the this time around it was much more it was much more difficult. They had ramped up the physical, uh, the, the PT portion of it, the physical training. So it was a lot harder than it was last time. Uh, we did a lot more running. We did a lot more hills. We did, uh, you know, it was like a, a basic training, uh, army basic training. You know, we did, we did log carries and, and all kinds of stuff. You know, we did fireman carries. We did, we did, you know, the whole gamut of physical training that you would expect to see 
in any boot camp or um, police academy training. And so my body did not hold up as well this time. I had a lot of, uh, I had some tendonitis going on. I had some, you know, but I, but I struggled through it and I always maintained um, where I needed to be and, um, and still, still graduated you know 17 out of out of 67 in my class that and that included all my scores my academic my driving my shooting and my physical training as well so i thought i didn't think that was too bad for graduating 53 <laughs> and number 17 in my class what was it like being so much older than everyone else we we had a conversation at one point when we were in uh <clears throat> in the gym and some of the some of the younger ones were talking about some stuff that they were doing and 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 I I looked at him and I said wait a minute what year were you born <laughs> we were chuckling about it and uh, most of them were born in like 93 94 and I said oh my gosh I was already a police officer <laughs> my nickname in the academy they used to call me mom so that was a nice I mean, it, it was very heartwarming, and they all, they were all really, at first I think they were a little concerned that I could even make it, um, but then about halfway through the academy, or, or probably a little sooner than that, they were, they were all rooting for me, and they, they were there in support, and you know, um, and I was kind of there, they, it was nice, they, they, they treated me like a mom, you know, it was nice. And when we come back more with Wendy Caldwell's story, and my goodness, she was scared to become a mom, and then she was scared to become a cop again. And that happens in our lives, folks, and that's why we tell you stories like this and from our subjects' mouths themselves. When we come back, more of Wendy Caldwell's story here on Our American Stories. And if you have a story like this, and particularly these life-changing stories, the kids are out of the nest, you're sick of one career, you go to another, a divorce, a death, uh, something that really fundamentally shifts your life view, and you've got to react and change. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories are some of our favorites. When we come back, more of Wendy Caldwell's story after these commercial messages. we continue with the story of Wendy Caldwell. She had not worked for almost 20 years after staying at home with her kids. After she got a divorce, Wendy decided to go back to work for the Houston PD. That would make her the oldest cadet to graduate from that academy. We return to Wendy talking about how the other recruits in the academy treated her. They used to razz me all the time and there was one guy in particular and he used to he used to kid me all the time and he'd say, you know, when you graduate, we're gonna we're gonna get you a life alert, and I said, "Oh, thanks a lot. I appreciate you." <laughs> and uh, he jokingly said one time, uh, "He goes, well, maybe if we don't get you a life alert, we'll have to get you a walker when you graduate." And uh, coincidentally, I did I did graduate and cross the stage on a walker because during the last phase of training, um, 
my femur was broken. And uh, so I had to finish the academy on a walker. <laughs> Wendy actually broke her femur during the final academy exercise. How did this happen? It happened during an exercise called Red Man, which is the culmination of your physical training for the entire academy. And um, they basically what our Red Man does is it prepares you as a new police officer to understand what it feels like to be in, a, in the fight of your life. Um, because a lot of times you'll have recruits that come in that, that may have never ever been in a fight in their life. Um, you know, a scuffle, or, and most of them have never been punched in the face. So this is a little, just a little taste of that to help you understand what it's like when you're chasing a suspect and you catch them and they don't want to be arrested and you guys are fighting. Um, and that's, it's, 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 um, it's intense, it's exhausting, um, and then you're fighting under the um, uh, exhaustion and uh, you know you're, what it's like to fight with that diminished oxygen and mental capacity, what your thinking is gonna be like during that time. Um, so it, it gives you a lot of different um, things to think about, um, but it's used as a training tool at the very end of the academy. So. And unfortunately, during my session, um, the, my red man gave me a, 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 a femur strike with the knee and, uh, and broke my leg. Fortunately for me, I had completed um, all of the T-Cole requirements necessary for the academy with the exception of taking my exam. So at that point, it was, all I had to do was take the exam. Um, um, to finish the academy um, and then graduate, which was in two weeks. So they were talking about recycling me and, you know, there was, it, it was a little scary for me at the time because I, the first thought that went through my mind was, I went all this way and I'm not going to get to graduate. I'm, I'm going to have to do this whole thing again. And I, I, knew in my mind that I physically didn't think I had another six and a half months in me to do it. So it was, it was tough. I mean, it was emotionally, it really, it really messed with me a little bit because I thought I'm not going to, this can't be happening. So <clears throat> luckily for me, um, my captain at the time over the academy, she was they talked about it and they were like, oh no, she's done everything. All she has to do is take the exam. Um, my academic scores were, there wasn't an issue with that. So I took my, my state licensing exam and passed that with flying colors. And they allowed me, graciously allowed me to graduate with my class. So how did being an officer in her 20s differ to being a police officer in her 50s? I think your perspective changes dramatically once you have kids. And you realize that you're not this invincible, you're not this invincible person anymore. 
Um, you also, you have these little human beings to take care of. Um, so it changes your perspective on things a lot. You're a lot more cautious about things. You're, you know, and I also realize too that, that my age plays a little bit more into that factor as well. I, I, I'm not as fast as I used to be. My reflexes are probably not as quick. I'm probably a little smarter though, because <laughs> I can see it coming quicker. But uh, yeah, there's just a, there's a whole lot of, you, it's just everything. Your perspective is the biggest change in the whole thing. You know, back when I was 30, I was invincible. You know, you get up, you're every day, you're excited to go to work. You're running and gunning and, and loving, loving the, the chase and the thrill of the chase. And now it's like, it's fun, but I'm not going to get all excited about it like I used to. <laughs> I need to be a little more cautious. <laughs> How did her kids respond to her going back to the police force? My kids were awesome. They were so supportive of me, and um, they really were my biggest fans. They really, really were. my. Um, on the really, really hard days, you know, I just remember what they, that they were there and that I was doing this for them, you know, a lot of it was for them. So uh, when we were, a very poignant moment for me was when we were putting on our uniforms for graduation. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still on a walker and, you know, getting my uniform on and I, um, zip up that uniform shirt and um, I actually started crying because it was it was a very emotional moment for me to realize that I had earned that that shirt and badge and the privilege to, to wear that uniform one more time and my kids were they were amazing at my graduation they were so they were so excited. I think they were more excited than I was. <laughs> what are Wendy's future plans? I am actually 55 now. I graduated the academy at 53, so I'm 55 now. I'll be 56 coming up here shortly. Um, I am back at the mounted patrol unit, so I get to... I'll probably, I'll probably stay here and end my career over here. It'll be a long one, but... I'm not quite sure how many years we can do at this point, but as long as I can, I'm gonna stay here. You're never too old to do what you really wanna do. And sometimes when it's really, really hard, that's when you, that's when you get the best reward. You know, that's, this was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's also been the most rewarding. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And thank you to Wendy Caldwell, and great job as always, Faith, on this story. I'm not sure how many years I have, but I'm going to stay as long as I can. She was doing it for her kids, and yet her kids, well, they were cheerleading on mom. And it's a beautiful thing when people do these kind of things. We also got to hear, well, what cops train for. Right? and the circumstances they have to get into in their lives. They actually get trained to get punched in the face, to run down perps who might be on drugs or might be doing bad things to the community. And so anytime we get a chance when we can walk in the shoes of others, 
including those in blue or those fighting overseas to defend us, understand their walk. It's harder than the rest of us. They're volunteering to fight against some really dark forces in the world, and that can impact their lives. We're looking for your stories, too, always. These kinds of stories, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, your stories are our favorites here. This is Our American Stories, a story of Wendy Caldwell, a story of love, a story of compassion, and in the end, what nerve and guts to go back into the academy in your 50s. What a choice, a beautiful choice. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show. History, the arts, sports, and of course, your stories as well, stories about love and loss, the stories of hardworking Americans across this country in their voices. And of course, you can send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. We'll edit them down, and we'll play them. We love to hear from you, and we love to hear about you and your lives One of our favorite subjects is leadership, and we talk about it a lot, at least once a week. And some of our favorites, well, Pete Pace's remarkable story, graduates from Annapolis, finds himself in a place called Vietnam. And the question is, how do you lead men who are older than you and have been in the field of combat? And Pete Pace walks some students through that conundrum. Bear Bryant and John Wooden, we did hours on those great leaders in the sports field and many more. And two of our favorites also, Ed Renzi's story. He's the CEO of McDonald's, and he started at the minimum wage there. And Faye Vincent's life and his leadership lessons. He was the commissioner of Major League Baseball and also the president of Columbia Pictures. Two very different worlds. At the top of his game, at the top of his field, in both sports and the arts. And this next segment is on Mike Levin, a friend, a business leader, And just a really, really good guy. And it's hard for many men to say that about other men. Because so many guys, well, we're a mixed bag. But Mike, a mensch, uh, if he doesn't mind me saying so. And my goodness, a lifetime of leadership in the hotel business. From growing and expanding the Holiday Inn Express brand. To, in the last episode of his career, growing and expanding the remarkable Las Vegas Sands brand. And that was in the years somewhere around the mid-2000s. Mike now is the chairman and chief executive officer of the Georgia Aquarium. And my goodness, if you haven't been, it's one of the greatest aquariums in the world, maybe the greatest aquarium in the world, and built in large measure by the generosity of Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot. And we talked to Mike uh, on and off about him performing a talk he's given now and then to young people and to old people, and in between, about life leadership lessons he learned. And here's Mike performing 54 Things I Learned in 54 Years. As I reach this much maligned place in the world called retirement, it's not only with satisfaction and awe, but with trepidation. Even today, I wondered for these past months what I might say in these few minutes allotted to summarize a body of work 
which in fact represented the great majority of my life. Unable to summarize quickly, I thought I would simply speak in short sentences what I've learned since the first day on February 1, 1961. When I took a decamp bus from North Arlington, New Jersey to the Port Authority bus terminal in Manhattan, to the shuttle to Grand Central Station, and walked through a long tunnel to my seat in the sales department of the Hotel Roosevelt. So here are 54 things I learned, one for every year, not in chronological order. I learned that brains are no substitute for hard work, that every single employee is a human being that deserves dignity and care, that the customer has a voice and should be listened to, that the customer is not always right, but is always the customer, that the boss is not always right, but is always the boss, that to ask why rather than to accept an order is okay, that you make mistakes and that is the best way to learn, that to listen is better than talking, that people don't always do the right thing, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't, that honesty and truth sometimes get you into trouble, but it's okay because in the end you will win. To tell the truth because you never have to remember what you said. That every person, no matter their color, gender, sexual orientation, or religion, has equal opportunity and should be provided that, but should work to maintain those rights. That people everywhere care about their family, their loved ones, and their country. That international business is not a mystery. That the more diverse you make yourself, the easier it is to understand others. That tolerance and patience gains respect from others and self-respect as well. That people need explanations of why they should do things you want them to do. That participation in industry activities is not only a giving experience to others, but is a learning experience for yourself. That this is a human industry where you can touch thousands and build friendships. That competitors are not enemies. That the balance sheet of life is more important than the balance sheet of the business. That Wall Street is just a street, not a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. That as a young person, you learn a lot, but even as an old person, you still much learn. That when you have to fire someone, never take their dignity away. That if you have a family, don't miss your kids' events. They grow up too fast. That you can balance your life and be successful. That no matter how much money you make, someone always makes more. That no matter how much money you make, someone always makes less. That charity and giving are more rewarding than making and taking. That professionalism means not perfection, but the skill to be successful. That real peace for you financially comes when you have no debts. That the debts you have should be to people or institutions that provided your values. That corporations are not an end in themselves, they are a means to an end. 
that when you are mistreated, never lower your standards to behave like the one who did it. That politics exists everywhere, not only in government. That being political is a strategy that works sometimes, but not always. That doing a favor for someone else is better than getting one from someone else. That the Bible and Shakespeare teach you more than economics or corporate finance. That democracy is a tough strategy and a difficult system, but seeing many others is still the best system invented. That capitalism provides the best opportunities, but it is not perfect and not always fair. That reading biographies teaches you lessons you cannot learn by yourself. That returning a phone call to someone you haven't heard from in years should be a joy, not a burden. That early to bed and early to rise helps to get the job done. That exercise, eating right, and dressing properly are strategies for good health and a good life. That bad things happen to good people, but that good people handle them much better. That passion for a sports team is a good relief from the normal tensions of life, but remember, it's only a game. That you should enjoy every obligation because with obligations done, responsibility is earned and success follows. That don't sweat the small stuff is a bad strategy. That your life is made up of small stuff, so live with it. That winning isn't everything, it's how you play the game that counts. That the apple of temptation is always there and you will be tested often. Be yourself and to thine own self be true should be written on every desk that you should be proud to be an American. And lastly, number 54, that the best word in the English language is love. Now it's two years since I've done this speech and I've learned number 55. Number 55 is no matter what you have done well in your life, oftentimes you will not get credit for it. And thanks so much for that, Mike, and my goodness. My favorites to tell the truth because you never have to remember what you said. Brains are no substitute for hard work. My goodness, I've seen that play out in my life and friends' lives over and over again. That no matter how much you make, that is money, someone always makes more. And then no matter how much money you make, someone always makes less. And that the Bible and Shakespeare teach you more than economics or corporate finance. So glad to hear that from somebody who's applied the trades in business his whole life. And lastly, the best word in the English language is love. And to hear that from a, a businessman and a friend, well, that's why he is a friend. And that's Mike Levin, who spent his life leading in the hotel business right up to one of the biggest and most well-known brands in the country, the Las Vegas Sands. And now in retirement, still running things, chairman and chief executive officer, Georgia Aquarium. Take your family, take friends to this remarkable place. You'll just smile for a day. This is Lee Habib, Mike Levin's 54 Things I Learned in 54 Years. In the end, his story here on Our American Stories.